The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Today's scripture reading will be from 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1 through 12. If you're reading on the books under your chairs, it's on page 228. And you can also follow along on the screen behind me. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the peoples of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off of the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old. So the tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. Both as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Yeah, really, I, you know, it's interesting. I was doing prep. I got a friend whose mom has been real sick, and, and I got a text 15 minutes ago. His mom passed away, and I thought, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's almost positive in terms of the significance of Mother's Day, but boy, that, that's hard. And so, again, um, I rejoice with those mothers here today that are doing well, but I also grieve an extent that um, there is loss and, and that it is hard. Um, but maybe these, the hardness, the rawness to that can press us back to God, um, which is what the adversity hopefully does every time. Um, and, and that in the end isn't a bad thing if, if we wind up being pressed back into the presence of God. Um, so with that, 
Um, two takeaways this morning. The, the first thing I want to talk about is, um, boy, I get to talk on hemorrhoids. How often do you get to talk about hemorrhoids on Sunday morning? I mean, now I'm not also going to say I've had hemorrhoids or not had hemorrhoids, but I know they're not good. So we're going to leave that there, just kind of give you a disclaimer, that's coming. Um, the second thing is that this week kind of spins off of um, chapter four last week. And, and last week, just as kind of a recap, I'll give you a recap in a minute. But, but the takeaway from last week was that the Israelites tried to commandeer God and it doesn't work. And this week, a godless people, well, I shouldn't say godless, a misled God people, because uh, they had their gods, they just weren't working, um, tries to, to commandeer the God of the Israelites and that doesn't work either. And really the takeaway is that commandeering God, whether you are godless or have a God, doesn't work real well. Um, and, and there are reasons for that. The second thing, and I think overarching that, which is a much bigger issue, is that we see religion and we also see that in what we profess as Christians, that our religion leads to a relationship. And the difference between the two are about as clear as the difference between the words lightning and lightning bug. All right, the disparity there between religion and a relationship. Because we can spend our life in a church and not have a relationship with Christ. And you'd be better off probably playing golf Sunday mornings if it never brings you to a holy God. Um, might be a little more enjoyable in your outdoors, enjoying the weather. So two takeaways, big takeaways, and, and I'll kind of build on those as we go through. My outline is very simple this morning. Um, the first section, I have two sections, our God versus their God. That's verses one through five. Our God versus their God. That's the Ark of the Covenant in the temple with Dagon. So our God versus their God, First uh, Samuel 5, one through five. And then verses six through 12 is our God versus their people. Uh, they've got to contend with the Ark of the Covenant. And so we see how our God affects their God and how our God affects their people. And that's verses six through 12. So kind of simple outline. So as Christians, um, we believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God and the original scriptures without fault, um, and wholly accurate, and to be relied upon as, as the truth. Um, and, and if you spend a little time there, there's an Old Testament which basically gives the, sets the stage for the culmination of the person of Christ coming. And in the person of Christ, we believe that Jesus Christ was God's one and only Son, he was born of a virgin, conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit, lived a sinless life, lived 30 years in relative obscurity, spent three years in a public ministry that was taken in widely varying degrees. His life at 33 years came to an abrupt end when he was unjustly and falsely accused of the truth of the matter, which was that he was the Son of God. Uh, he was tortured and executed and in hindsight, we know that, that that death was for a satisfaction of the wrath of God for the sin of man, meaning that our sin must be penalized, there must be a consequence, there must be judgment placed on the sin of man, and that Christ took our sin as a substitutionary form of atonement, meaning appeasing God's wrath for that. We know three days later, he rose from the dead, ascended, sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will return. In the interim, we believe that he has spent, sent his Holy Spirit, 
which empowers, guides, convicts, leads, reminds, and a litany of other things to indwell the believer as a guarantee of things to come and of our salvation. That's what we believe. And now, from an outsider standpoint, that's kind of crazy, by the way. Just to give you a heads up, if you think that's normal, it's not. We don't talk about dead people coming back to life in any other religions, to my knowledge. Like, literally, like, walking around in a, in a body that has faced death. But we know the big deal with death is that in that resurrection, it, it points for the things that we have to come, which is a resurrection as well. So... Nonetheless, in this world, there are many other people who make claims about the gods or the religions they are involved in. Um, And so this morning, we see how our religion squares up with a god of a particular religion, but we'll contrast out how our god matches up with the various other gods of the world, just by way of being here in this passage. Um, So when I talk about worshiping false gods, you guys probably are like, well, you're preaching to the choir now. And and I want to temper that a little bit by giving you a definition. So so when we talk about worship of a God, I want to define the uh, general concept of God or a God. And this is broadly speaking, a God can be defined as anything which we adore, value, exalt, Sacrifice to or sacrifice for or worship in place of or in competition with the one true and holy God. So a God can be defined as anything which we adore, value, exalt, sacrifice to or sacrifice for or worship in place of or in competition with the one true and holy God. So when we contrast out our God with a God, can we as believers worship a God or various gods? Um, Nothing wrong with children valuing our work, adoring our wife, or even in particular on exalting our mothers today, right? Um, Nothing wrong with that at all until that worship, that adoration, that valuation interferes with a relationship with how we exalt a holy God. And then at that point, that person, place, thing, or most of the time, truthfully, if you're in my camp, me, I exalt myself, I value myself, or worship myself over and above God. And so um, it obviously then comes into play when we start talking about on a Sunday morning, worshiping false gods because in our hearts, there's an expression of one of the theologians said that our hearts are little idol factories, meaning our desire and need to worship is so great that we'll manufacture those things within ourselves if we are not in alignment with worshiping a true and holy God. So, So with that explanation and and a couple definitions, how how does our God stand up against the God? And it's just something to chew on as we kind of go through this morning, because I don't think anyone here is worshiping Dagod, and if Dagod, or I'm not sure how we pronounce him, Dagod or Dagon, uh, or some other words I'll use later. So with that, um, we we are going to um, move forward.
So last week, if you weren't here, the Israelites have this conflict with the Philistines. They go up to battle. They lose 4,000 men. Bad day. And so they figure, how are we going to win in this battle? And so they say, well, we'll commandeer the ark of God. We'll bring God with us into this battle, and we will have a victory. So there's actually a little bit of precedence for that, by the way. Back in Joshua chapter 6, God specifically told Joshua, here's what you do. We're going to take over this town called Jericho. And you guys are going to get the Ark of the Covenant, have the military in the front and the back. You're going to get seven priests with seven horns. And we're going to march around the city of Jericho seven days in a row. And on the seventh day, you'll march seven times around the city. And on the seventh time, priests blow the horn. And at that point, the army screams. And when they do this, the walls of the city of Jericho collapse. Israel rushes in, seizes the city, and there's victory victory. So obviously, I think there's a little bit in play, except one critical fact is that God did not tell the Israelites in this Samuel chapter 5 to go and take the ark anywhere. The ark was to remain in the Holy of Holies, the most inner chamber of the tent of meeting. And they were directed to place it there and keep it there unless directed otherwise. They come up with this great idea this last week where we'll get the ark of the covenant, we'll go march out to battle, and the Lord will bring us victory. They grab the Ark of the Covenant, they march out into battle and lose and proceed to lose badly. 30,000 men are killed, two of whom are Hophni and Phinehas, which were Eli's two sons. And they seize the Ark of the Covenant. Word reaches back to Eli, who hears this, keels over, breaks his neck. I believe it's Phinehas's daughter, excuse me, Phinehas's wife. Yes, Phineas's wife, giving birth, dies in childbirth. They named the child Ichabod, which, which means gloryless or glory departed. And so now here we are, we pick up chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God, brought it into the house of Dagon, and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, so they took Dagon and put him back in place. So a little history about Dagon. This is not, by the way, where the expression Dagonic came from. It does not come from there, although some of you might be wondering. Dagon was an idol, a false god. They worshipped in a Canaanite society. He had originated from Mesopotamia, which was kind of the hotbed of where Satan kind of got his rise to power and claim to fame. Um, he was known as the father of the God of Baal. Now, Baal will take on a lot of significance later on in the Old Testament. Um, Dagon was known as the God of fertility or of crops. Um, it's debated. There's a little bit of inter interesting information out there. Historically, his body, some think, was part man, part fish. Um, the bottom part would have been obviously fish. The top part, man, because you have the head and the arms that would have been coming to a, uh, having a problem with that shortly. The word dag, D-A-G, actually in Hebrew means fishy part. I thought that was kind of interesting. So there's a little bit of basis for this. Um, so being the god of grain, he's responsible for this bountiful harvest, hence the god of fertility. Um, would have been a large carven stone image. Occasionally would, but most of the time they were in stone. They were big. You wanted an imposing God, so if you came to see this God in the temple, you'd have to go, wow, look at this. It was kind of one of those things you would, it should wow you. It was probably 10, maybe 20 feet high, could have been bigger, but large. So the ark is placed in this temple. Lord knocks Dagon down. 
Uh, the Philistines coming in the morning, see their God on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. The significance there would be to denote when you lay face down before another in this culture is that you were worshiping or submitting to this God. So you walk in and there's Dagon worshiping or acknowledges, acknowledging the God of Israel. So you kind of connect a lot of dots there. Um, now, there's a hallmark here. If you have a false God that needs propping up, you need a new God. Just, just to give you a heads up, if you have to help him and assist him at times, no good God there. Um, you do not want to entrust your eternal destination, let, let alone your worldly problems, to a God who needs his own assistance. Just a little bit of personal takeaway there. So the Philistines prop him back up. They go to bed that night, and we pick up in verse 4. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and... The head of Dagon and both the legs, excuse me, the head of Dagon and both of the hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all those who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So same results again of bowing down, but a little more twist here. You see a little bit of the anger of God coming out now, not just does this God have to worship him, but there seems to be a very significant symbolic um, push here toward how well this God will stand up. The head of a being denotes authority in this context. So the people would have known that if you chop off somebody's head, you would lose their authority. The hands denoted strength. Obviously, like when, when somebody says, he's my right-hand man, that, that's somebody who comes into battle with you who would have the strength to assist in defending you. So with the head and the arms removed, we now see a God that's bowing down to the God of the Israelites who now has no authority and no strength likewise. So we pick up verse 6. Uh, the, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. You know, it's really interesting there. They know now this God has the ability to decapitate and render powerless their own God. And they're not changing gods. Their, their solution isn't to say, do away with the God that isn't working and utilize the God now that is, that has greater authority. We would want to, a rational human being would say, well, it would be stupid to keep Dagon around at this point. But the problem is, is that sin blinds us. It, it hardens our hearts so we can't see the truth and the reality. So even in light of the miraculous demonstrations and the apparent authority and power of a true holy living God, we still can't come to the place, apart from his grace, to receive and acknowledge who the true God really is, which should be pretty horrifying, by the way. All right, so we pick up. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of God of Israel be brought forth around to Gath. Now, if you have neighbors like this, you don't need enemies. I'm like, well, this is pretty bad. It's, it's, I, I, you know, when you read scripture, sometimes you go, what? Did they really record it this way? Were these people as messed up as us maybe? Yes, they were, absolutely. 
So, so we see, obviously, the Philistines also take away that this God is angry with them now. That doesn't draw them to repentance. It draws them to distance themselves from this God. Again, hello. You, you understand the reality, yet your takeaway is completely skewed. And again, think about how we struggle sometimes. We'll see reality, but the takeaway is completely construed, misconstrued. You know, it's interesting when the Israelites last week lost the war, they knew that the hand of God was not with them. Yet they couldn't understand that they weren't in alignment with God. Yet then they commandeer God and drag him out to a battle and lose severely. That's like, what did you miss with the first round? They knew that victory was given to the Philistines. That would say, hey, let's redouble our efforts with God before we do anything else, rather than commandeering the ark and marching back off into battle. So, so you have this plague that afflicts them, and it's basically, initially, out of the starting gate, it looks like um, there's this plague of tumors, yet in, in, it, the root word for tumor means to swell, um, which could mean many things, but in verse 9, we're going to get to that in a minute, the Hebrew word for broke out refers specifically to the groin area. Now, if you start connecting gods, the dots here, it makes perfect sense. They have this god of fertility, and ultimately, the, the greatest the culmination of fertility is to procreate and to have children. So then there's this affliction that has swelling, and, and the assumption is now that we're dealing with a pretty severe case of hemorrhoids. And affecting your capacity, and it's the men, that has this problem with the capacity of the men to do anything even remotely near to, to tumors. From, from a kind of a um, humorous standpoint, picture the Philistine wife saying, honey, honey, would you please come to bed early tonight? And his response is, no, I have some swelling. You know, when you have some swelling, there's no fun. You just skip going to bed early. You're, you're decommissioned. Now, here's the other thing with the swelling between the legs is that nothing will get a man's attention like swelling between the legs. Just trust me. If you're a woman, just be sympathetic and trust us men. If there's swelling, we're not going to bed early. Trust me. So having said that, again, only a doc says you march through the Bible do we have to address this stuff. That's the beauty of just picking up a book and starting on chapter one and marching through. You wind up having, listening to these conversations from the pulpit, and that's kind of scary, but we got to play where the ball lays. So at this point, we've obviously got the swelling between the legs. Likely affliction is a really bad case of hemorrhoids or something akin to that. So, the city leaders conclude God is angry, but they have the wrong takeaway. Let's, let's bring the, this God to our neighbor. That is not a logical response. Um, the ark needs to go. Instead of, and this is interesting, instead of sending it back to Israel, why don't they just pack the thing up and say, take your flipping God back, we're done. And I think there may be a, a fear on their part that they know, now, the rumor mill, when, the, when, this, when they start moving this ark around the towns, by the third town, they're freaking out before the ark even gets there. Like when you have swelling between the legs and it's contagious, the rumors really, whether it's unfounded or founded, word travels quick. And so the Israelites, the, the Philistines would have known the Israelites didn't have this affliction between the legs. What's going on here? 
Yet they wouldn't want to turn around and give any God that has any authority back to the Israelites for fear that they finally figure out how the Ark of the Covenant might work and then they use it back against them. That's rational. So they want to send the ark on to their neighbors. And again, with friends like that, you do not need neighbors. Picture this. The, um, the, so they bring the ark to the neighbors. And, and the guys bringing the ark to the neighbors kind of walking real funny. You know, they kind of got, they're not riding horses, right? Come on, let's be honest again. You're not sitting, right? These, these are hemorrhoids. And they're kind of walking funny and they hand them the ark and they kind of walk away and they're like, hey brother, what's with the walk? And they're like, you'll find out soon enough. And they kind of head out the door. I mean, it's just craziness when you kind of think this stuff through. Um, it's, it's weird when, you, it's easy to read the Bible sometimes and it kind of just glaze over. But if you think how this really played out, you're like, this is pretty bizarre. This, this is, um, it's just, it, it points out the picture of the madness of humanity, I think, in, in color. So we pick up in verse, the middle of verse 8. So they brought the ark of God to Israel. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there, that's to Gath. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, with tumors, uh, so that the tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of the God came to, excuse me, Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, their, uh, they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly panic throughout the whole city. Uh, the hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So a lot, lot of stuff going on. Gath would have been the, that next destination, southernmost Philistine city. Uh, in short order, the citizens of Gath find it difficult to sit down, so the ark is off again to Ekron. By this time, the word is traveling faster than the ark, and the people are freaking out. There's some commentary that talked about this death, deadly panic is that there might have been some confusion where literally people started turning on each other and killing each other in the midst of this affliction of the, this deadly breakout. Um, now, it's interesting if I told you that there was a plague of deadly hemorrhoids coming to a town near us, we probably would head out on vacation quick, right? Uh, I guess the men, I should speak for the men again. The women say, well, you know, I'll go if the husband will take me somewhere nice. Um, it's really interesting, again, that um, how this word travels and how they completely miss the fact we're dealing with a holy God. You know, the reality is, is if you, you watch physical affliction, they directly correlated it with the Ark of the Covenant. Humor aside, there's no argument that there's a correlation between the holiness of God, that little box with the funny angels on it, and the affliction we're suffering. And their responses send it away. And so we know from last week, the Israelites have this authority that's symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant, and they try and commandeer it for their own benefit. So we have the people of religion on one hand who want to commandeer the power and authority of God for their own benefit. And then you have another group of people that as soon as they realize this authority cannot accommodate their gods, they want to send it away. 
And it gives you a pretty good picture now how people are going to respond who don't have a relationship with that God. And that's the big deal. That's, that's the takeaway for us today. If I told you, I'm, I want to sell you something, and you're going to respond one of three ways. And if you knew every single time, it would only result in one of three responses, send it away, let it do a little uh, monkey pony show for me, or uh, this can be utilized to drastically change the way I live my life. It would affect us as the church on how we behave ourselves, how we proclaim a message. See, if you're an Israelite now at this time, and, and the objective were to evangelize to the Philistines, how would we approach them? They know it's a holy, sovereign God. They know it has power. How, how do we bridge the divide from saying, yes, this is holy and sovereign, and absolutely that is not going to change, but there's a relationship that can be had with this God that's personal. How, how does that affect us when we see these types of things play out? It's interesting, in the end of this chapter, the verse closes with, the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. And that's a lot of times, like, God knows everything, right? So why does Scripture record? There are other passages of Scripture where it says, and God heard their cry. Well, God heard their cry anyway. Why are we recording this? Because it denotes that, that it takes on a greater level of awareness or that uh, certain attention will be given to a particular people, or that there will be a greater response from God when God hears your cry. Scripture would, the takeaway there would be more like um, that, that God will respond in mercy when he hears your cry. And that's how the chapter ends. So if you want a nice cliffhanger for next week, you'll have to come back next week and see how this plays out. It's just as, almost just as entertaining as this week, by the way. And, and you see the madness of humanity continue to play out there. So the takeaway for us, I, I was thinking about this. What is the difference not only just between Dagon and our God, but all the gods and our God? And, I, and I'm going I'm to play that out a little bit. But a quick piece of takeaway is that the, the one and only God is not, is not a God to mess with, meaning that we don't take this God lightly. And, and I'll say this for myself, and I think it's true with the church, is that if we really get the holiness of God, we tend to understand our sin a little better. And the greater we understand our sin, the more we need Christ and the more beautiful Calvary becomes. You follow me there? And so the question becomes, why isn't there more preaching on the holiness of God in our sanctuaries? And I'm not saying churches in this morning in the Grand Strand aren't doing that, but I'm saying if there were a paradigm shift toward preaching more along the line of the holiness of God, if we're going to extract things out from the Word of God, we can take a lot of things out. But there's never going to be a downside to extracting out the holiness of the God that we proclaim and serve. Um, because what sets in motion there is understanding who we are and how desperate we need redemption. And then when you, when you catch a glimpse of the cross, I used to read some old, uh, I, I still do, I read a lot of old stuff. There, there's people that have, if it's been around 100 or 200 years, you can tell it's 
tends to be pretty good if it's still widely read in theological circles, even in literature circles for that matter, in secular. If it lives out 100 or 200 years, it's probably worth, worth a pass in terms of reading. But there's um, some of the preachers talk about, oh, beautiful Jesus, oh, sweet Jesus, oh, beloved Jesus. And I used to be like, oh, that's hokey. No, 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 not hokey at all. Oh, gosh, when, when you're parched, your throat is hard and dry and feels like it's cracking, and somebody gives you a glass of ice-cold water. Oh, it is sweet. It is refreshing. It is glorious as that fluid goes down your throat. And when you think about a holy God sending his son to die a sacrificial death for a rotten, corrupt, belligerent, stiff-necked, unrepentant piece of a human being, and there's a love and a cleansing and a renewal and a refreshment and a sonship or a daughtership imposed upon you, oh, he becomes sweet. He becomes glorious. And so those words start to bleed through into our vocabulary as we grow in understanding who this God really is. This God will not be confined to man's temples. And boy, we set up our own temples and want to corral God and put him in his box and say, stay there. You know, when I turn the lights out, I don't want you coming anywhere else. You know, you're going to, or nine to five, you stay here. I'm going to go out Friday night, do what I'm going to do. But no, 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 you need to stay there because you can't come with me. I mean, oh my goodness. God says, no, 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 I'm along for the ride. Whether Jew or Gentile, God's power and authority cannot be commandeered for man's purposes. Very simple. And for the Philistines, God did not allow them. Did, did, for the Philistines, did God not allow them the victory? See, the Jews knew they lost because God wasn't with them. Philistines aren't stupid people. So their takeaway would have been that either our God gave us victory, which I think is part of the message here in, in the affliction, to say your God had nothing to do with the victory. There's a big piece of takeaway, is that in your loss, and in the people thinking that they won, they're thinking their God had authority over the God of the Israelites, when in fact, they bring that God home and start licking their wounds quick. Going, no, 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 maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was their God who allowed them to lose to give us this victory. And I think that's part of the theological message here to the Philistines is that you didn't win this battle. Too many stories all throughout the Bible about a little handful of men overcoming. We're going to read about it this time where David goes off with 600 men. The Amalekites had sacked his, his camp with his wife and kids at the end of Samuel. And, and they go off and 200 of, the four, of 600 men say, oh, we're tired and thirsty and we can't go into battle. And he goes after the Amalekites. And it says, when they defeated the Amalekites, 400 men riding on camels escaped. So don't correlate victory with numbers. That's not accurate biblically. God gives victory when the odds are completely against us. And that's a great takeaway again for us when we live in a world that declares all of this is a lie and it can't work. And the power and the authority of God says, no, 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 the victory, we don't do numbers. We don't do statistics. We do victory that flows from the throne of a holy God that acts on your behalf. So with this, with this, God would give the Philistines this victory and so what's the takeaway for them that the ark, uh, even if you have the ark, it's not yours. That's part of the message. Um, but God will ultimately not allow anything that does not bring him glory and honor and respect and due deference. And I think that's part of the lesson this week that we see in how God responds to an unrepentant world. It's not going to change 
the, the need to bow down before this God when he comes before humanity that is unrepentant. And has, has anything changed for us in the last three to 4,000 years? Do, do we gauge our victories and losses as coming from the hand of God versus, versus chance and luck and fate? And um, it's, you, you, you can't go there to say that this is all a, still a, a potluck, luck of the draw, how things play out here. We serve a holy, a holy God who is active, engaging, and participates in the details of our lives. So let me, let me do something that I just kind of felt a little led to do. So we compare gods of this world to the God of Christianity. The world's religions today tell us that you have to come to their God. You know, if you're Muslim, you have to go to Mecca to do this Hajj. There are all kinds of things that say we have to perform to comply or to capitulate or to meet the needs of particular gods, which means we have to take affirmative steps to engage in the relationship with these gods of the world. Yet in Christianity, we know that God has come to us. John 1 verses 14 tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 4.21 says this, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman by the well, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So do we have, and this can happen in Christianity, do we have people who say, oh, you need to go to this particular building or perform this particular activity in order to be right with God? A flag should immediately go up. That doesn't mitigate our need to assemble. Hebrews 10.24 tells us, and let us consider one another, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. That's a big deal coming together in collective worship. But when somebody says you need to do it this way or in this particular building or in this particular manner, we start running into some heresy, I think. And you've got to be careful with that. The world's religions require us to do good things to be right with God. Boy, this is, and this bleeds into the church, by the way. This is toxic works-based theology. As Christians, we believe that our behavior matters. Absolutely. But the behavior's in response to the receipt of grace, not to warrant it. You follow me? There is nothing that I can do to merit the favor of a holy God. Luke 19.10 says this with Jesus. Jesus said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. So his work is a saving work. It's not my work, it's his work. Ephesians 2.8, Paul tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one could boast. Further, Titus 3.4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not, be, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So the, so the big deal with Christianity is that it says what we bank on is based upon the action and work of God versus based on the action and work of man. And imagine this, if you've got a religion that says, well, you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which is what all the other religions tell you. And let's say you're coming down, down the home stretch of life and the last week of life, you have a really bad week. Where does that leave, leave you before a holy God? Versus the finished work of Christ being the full satisfaction and final payment for the penalty for the wrath of God for my sin. Done. Over. 
And truthfully, if you think about this for us, where do some of us, a good number of us who, who come to Christ, where do we find God in the end? We find him at the bottom of the pit. We, we dig ourselves through self-indulgence and self-destructive behaviors. If what we did would warrant a relationship with God, how many of us would be here this morning? I, I'm one of these guys. I'm a prodigal. I wouldn't be here. If there was nothing more than the grace of God to allow me to walk through the doors of a church, I'd be damned. Let me put it that way. And how many of us would never be able to make it through those doors? And again, I, I could give you stats from Romans 3, but you can look that up if you think you can walk through that door by your own bootstraps and, and, and appear well before a holy God. Just Romans 3, write it down if you're wondering about that, about your own holiness. World's religions require us to generate our own results versus Christianity, which says God will give us an indwelling spirit, which will generate the results he desires. So on one hand, the world says, you got to get me some results if you want to be right with God. You got to perform. And so the question becomes on our unaided strength, knowing we are corrupted human beings, our flesh has been, the well's been poisoned. Now, the gods of this world says, well, you got to do well and perform for me. Versus God saying, I'll, I'll let my spirit indwell you and he will do the work which I desire and find pleasing. If you want a reference for how good your own works are, it's in Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah. Our, our works is just fil our works, our righteous works are as filthy rags. It's either the Psalms or Isaiah. We'll type in filthy words in King James. It'll come up. It's actually the wording they use there. So when I think I do something right and good for God, if it's not Holy Spirit inspired, the biblical term for that is those righteous works are the equivalent of menstrual, dirty menstrual rags. You can, you can try it on. It, it's uh, futile. Don't, don't try to do works on your own without God. So the world's religions have us pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, do the best we can. Yet Acts 1.8 tells us, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, meaning this spirit comes in. The last one, and it's a big one, is that the world's religions tell us there are many ways to God, our Father. And Christianity stands in its own camp and says wrong. And people are going to say, well, that's awfully uh, one-sided. That's awfully um, um, exclusionary. We live in a society where, where tolerance is the key word. And if you're intolerant, you're wrong. You're a racist. You're a bigot. You're, you're all these other crazy things. That if you don't allow me to live the way I want, it's an offense to me and it's a personal attack from you coming to me and we'll treat it that way. And the problem with that is that it doesn't square up with biblical truth. Biblical truth says this, John 14, 6. Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12, Peter told at the first big sermon, first big revival, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And this culminates in the ultimate thing which separates the world's religions from our religion is that there's this foundational problem with sin. And if you're a good person and you go before a holy God and he says, did you ever tell a lie? You ever take something, give less than full value? Ever look at a woman with lust in your heart? Ever use the Lord's name in vain? Ever dishonor your mother and father? And a violation, just one violation is enough to draw down the wrath of a God. How do we square up the sin problem before a holy God? And that's the fact, every other religion leaves you hanging. 
dangling by a thread over, over a cliff that spans down through eternity into the gates of hell. That's biblical truth. And, and I don't want to sit here and say, I'm sorry, but that's the fact. That's a hard reality. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, but bro, relax. That's stern truth. Holiness is holiness. Depravity is depravity. It's treason against a holy God. Sin is sin. And so it leaves us. It leaves us in a hard place. And again, when, when we understand and grasp what Christ did on the cross for the sin of humanity, you can, you can more than exhale. I mean, that's why we rejoice. That's why when we come up for communion, we should be grinning ear to ear. That's why the joy of the Lord is present here. Because not only do we have something that equips us and gifts us and enables us to live in this world with our own broken, fallen, sinful humanity and in the midst of broken, fallen, sinful humanity, but we have an assurance of things to come. Knowing we are adopted into the kingdom of God, having eternal security. And it doesn't mean to mitigate our sin doesn't mean to take the grace in vain. And so I ask this question in closing. Let, let, let me ask this again. Let me give you the definition I gave in the beginning. So for us in Christ, we breathe a sigh of relief. And this is some interesting biblical stuff. But for somebody outside the body of Christ, somebody who has not experienced this gift of salvation, I, I would tell you, pray for mercy Pray that God would open your eyes. Pray that God would allow you to receive, that you could see, that you could hear, that through some miraculous work, he would just, in, in his own perfect plan and way, redeem you. I can't do that. And it's hard when you look and you tease out salvation experiences because it's, it's bizarre. Sometimes somebody's in God's word and they open eyes. They go, wow, yes, I want this. Other people have this eye-opening experience in various other ways. Some people, young children, some people at the bottom of the pit of self-indulgence. Other people spill too much liquor on their tie and say, it's time for me to seek a holy God and off they go. So I don't get what's going to bring you to that holy God, but I know that we have a role to play in approaching him. And I know approaching him, pleading for mercy, for kindness, for favor, for love is by far the first track I would tell anyone to go. But if you're sitting here having experienced the new birth, my question becomes this. Has your, relig has your relationship um, decayed into religion? And are there other gods now competing with our God? And I think that's the, that should be the warning for us this morning. Are we this morning giving anything, authority to something, which we adore, value, exalt, sacrifice to, sacrifice for, or worship in place of or in competition with the holy God. Where are we there today, this morning, for us as believers? What are we, is it our job? Is, is it our health? Is, is it our youthfulness? Is it, is it money? Is it authority? Is it position? Is it standing? And I would simply say, go back before a holy God. And most of the time, I think for me, it's me. I'm exalting myself. When I see God on the throne, there's a little part of the inside of me as a human broken being that says, I want the throne. I want the throne. And you start crawling up the throne and you encounter a holy God. And boy, that's merciful. 
and how he responds to me when I start climbing up to exalt myself on that throne. But I can do it through making you think I'm somebody I'm not. I can do it through lavishly the pleasures of the world. And if I'm not in his word, if I'm not in the body, if I'm not actively serving and ministering, caring, I'm trying to plug a ship that's filling quick with the godless ways of this world. But when we're in the body, when we're in the boat, it seems that when we allow God to let us worship and adore him and enjoy him as intended, this world takes note. And that's a big deal. So I want to close with this thought. I, I, hope, I hope you can display that amazing grace. Um, it's Mother's Day. Where's my mom? Stand up. Stand up, mom. All right, so I want, I want to tell you guys a story in closing. They were, and dad, stand up too. They were married, gosh, uh, six, six, 60 years this past. 58 years. Man, my brains. I'm standing up here and I didn't write that down. I, they, on their anniversary, they were going to come and my dad got sick. I love both of you and, and that you stand very high in my eyes and I esteem you. Thank you for being the parents you've been to me. So let me share a story about my mom quickly. You guys can sit back down. I'm 16 years old, driving down the road. I'm in a, car, a green Mazda. It's the one of the only new cars we ever bought. We're coming back from Seagirt. My brother, I think it was my brother was going to a private school. We had dropped off and my mother looks at me and says, you're going to need Jesus. <laughs> to which I respond, it sure as hell isn't now, mom. And, and so think about that. You know, you know and, I, and I use my mom today on Mother's Day as that example. But we need to be telling everybody that message. I don't care whether you want him, whether you think you need him. It doesn't matter. You need Jesus. Let me close with prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that um, we know who we need. I pray for those in this moment who have not experienced that relationship, that they could allow this religion we have to transmit to a change in their heart, that their eyes, their ears, their, that, that you could take a heart of stone and turn it to a heart of flesh. I thank you so much um, for my mom and for all those others who stood in my path and told me what I needed. They told me the truth. And um, Lord, I pray that we would be a church that would speak the truth. Above all, that we would love well, though, that in the midst of that, um, that truth, to let people know, Lord, let us balance, let these people know that we love them, but that they do need Jesus, and that is the truth. We thank you so much. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.